For the finest local and Victorian regional wine, look no further than Castlemaine Central Wine Store. They've got locally produced ciders, craft beer, plus a great range of everyday drinking wines at affordable prices. And they even sell gift vouchers. Castlemaine Central Wine Store, Littleton Street, Castlemaine. Monday to Saturday from 10.30am. A proud sponsor of 94.9 Main FM. The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. All aboard. Welcome, listeners, to The Quiet Carriage. It's another glorious winter's day here in Jajawarung country in Castlemaine. I hope you're doing well wherever you are. There doesn't seem to be much movement in terms of COVID, but it's not looking great. But we are not going to delve too much into that today. We'll leave that for other shows and we'll focus on something else that that really matters, and that is books. And there's been quite a bit of news during the week. The Melbourne Writers' Festival, they announced their program for 2020, which is, of course, digital for this year. And there's a plethora of great authors on their list. Uh, Here's just a few. Kate Grenville, Christos Cholkis, Jess Hill, um, Castlemaine's own Jenny Valentish is there. There's Helen Garner, there's Benjamin Law, and there's also a few former prime ministers on the list as well, because we do have quite a lot of them here in Australia. There's an absolute mountain of talent, too much to go through. Tickets are on sale. Uh, You can go to mwf.com.au and that's held the first week of August so make sure you get your tickets for that in other news entries are now open for the 2020 Castlemaine Poetry Prize there's a senior section there's a junior section there's cash prizes on offer just grab a copy of Castlemaine Mail for more info or you can visit their Facebook page also Radiothon here at the station well it's gone but it's not forgotten And what I mean by that is that you can still win prizes. Yeah, that's right. You can't win the weekly prizes, of course. That was just when Radiothon was on. But you have up until Friday, the 31st of July, where all new subscribers go into the draw to win one of the major prizes. And there is some big ones. I'll just run through some of them quickly. You can win prizes from the Animus Distillery, Boomtown Wine, Harcourt Valley Vineyards, Creamtown Arts Prints and Cafe, Richard McLeish Photography. Uh, you can win a sound recording from Sound Recordings Campbell's Creek. Uh, there's a glamping weekend from Paradise Glamping. Uh, there's a voucher from Taste of the Orient and vouchers from Theatre Royal. That's gig vouchers. So yeah, you have up until Friday, 31st of July. Just visit the website site mainfm.net and winners will be announced on the shout out show on thursday 6th of august and then again on mixtapes on friday the 7th of august and ads and macca in the morning on saturday the 8th of august so if you haven't subscribed and i know so many of you have and thank you so much for that but if you haven't yeah please jump on and it does help to to keep us on air so a lot going on and we haven't even started talking about today's episode So later in the episode, I'm going to be playing more from Kirsten Crouth. You might remember she did a reading for us uh, during Radiothon. And she's been very kind to let us play more of those recordings. Uh, Today's one, she's reading the chapter Change in Mood, backed with music from Michelangelo, who's playing a version of the Kids in the Kitchen songs of the same name. So that'll be later in the show. First up, we're temporarily heading off the fiction trail, sort of, and heading to the UK, heading to London. Author and academic Matthew Crowley, he has a book out. It's called The Left Behind, Representations of Working Class Masculinities in Post-War British Culture. He writes fiction too. Here's a little bit from his bio. Matthew Crowley, born in 1980, is a London-based strategist, researcher, and writer. 
Matthew graduated from Central St. Martin's with a BA in Fashion Design and Marketing in 2004, completed a Master's Degree in Modern and Contemporary Literature at Birkbeck College, University of London in 2011, and was awarded his PhD by the University of Brighton in 2018. Matthew lectures on British literature and in cultural and historical studies and undertakes consultancy work across a broad range of creative disciplines. And I caught up with him recently from his home in London. Matthew Crowley, thank you for coming aboard the quiet carriage all the way from London. You're very welcome. Hello, Paul. Hello. Yes, we've come, uh, we've got a bit of a history together. Don't we? Uh, just a bit. Um, we do, yeah. We've, we've both come a long way from uh, working the tills at the record shop in HMV, Oxford Circus. I'm That's o- right. Yeah. I'm over here now, and you have went on, you completed a PhD in English, I believe. Yeah. And you've yeah, written, right. you've written uh, a book. I've written a book. You've written a book. Can we... Take it a step back, because before that, you qualified as a fashion designer at St. Martin's <laughs> College. <laughs> I, I did, yeah. And I just it wanted to... How did you? How did you move from there? What was the inspiration behind you moving from there onto, onto pursuing English? Was that always something you sort of had in mind that you would do? Mm-hmm. I would say, um, I mean, I've never really had a plan, Paul, as, as you know. Mm-hmm. Me too, still <laughs> haven't. Know, my history together. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of just, I went from, what, I went from one opportunity to the next, you know, when yeah. something kind of appeared, I'd think, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, yeah I'll give that a go. Yeah. Um, I suppose English had always been a, a, a passion. I'd mm-hmm. always read a lot. I'd always written, um, but going to the school I went to and coming from the area I came from, mm-hmm. Sheffield, yeah, it wasn't, yep. yeah, yeah. Because I'm from a kind of, I went to Mill Springs School, so I, I joke now in a lot of my, um, if I have to write a biog for something, I, I kind of mention that I'm an old Mertolian, right? Um, because we were the, we were basically in the bottom three. Uh, schools of the of the like I don't know if it was just Sheffield or the Yorkshire region. We were right. always at the bottom. Yeah, like, it was one. It was one of the worst schools in the city, uh, basically. Right. Um, and you know there was like the, the usual story. There were there were some really good committed teachers who really mm-hmm. kind of helped some kids, but it was hard. Um, so like an academic path never seemed. Um, feasible really mm-hmm. it never seemed like a possibility mm-hmm. um whereas whereas with art i I'd kind of i'd got into that also from a young age but you know i guess in education that there's this real uh, they divide you and they try and put you in boxes i guess from or they did anyway i don't know if they still do in the same way mm-hmm. but you know i suppose i was I remember having conversations time and time again where it was like, well, you can't be good at, or you can't do art and English, or you mm-hmm. can't, or football, I was a decent footballer as well. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, well, you can't do sports and academia. Mm-hmm. Like the two are completely incompatible somehow. Yeah. Um, so I guess I pursued art. I wanted to be a painter. That's what I wanted to do. Right, okay. Um, but I had a tutor on my foundation course who I think, you know, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt, was was trying to be, like, practical and helpful. But she kind of said, you know, well, how are you going to make a living as a painter? Right. You should do you should do fashion design because you, uh, you've got some talent in mm-hmm. it and you get a job at the end of it. And, you know, she was kind of speaking to my working-class sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And I... I mean, looking back, really, I think I just bottled it. I should have gone for painting, but right. But there, there you go. Basically, she was. Her argument was that there was room for fine art in fashion, but there's little room for fashion in fine art. So right. I could kind of pursue 
pursue my desires and still maybe get a job at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. So that that was that was how that happened. Um, the transition, I think, came um, well when when my partner, when we, when my son, my first son was on his way. Mm-hmm. I started to really kind of reassess what I was doing. I'd been reading more. I'd started reading Marx. Mm-hmm. and a lot of Marxist theory and I was finding it like you know because I, I kind of come from a uh, a long line of Irish rebels and mm-hmm. trade union Yorkshire trade union men <laughs> yeah. um, and I was finding it harder and harder to kind of reconcile what I was doing for a living with what I actually believed in mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and we would be, we worked really hard to make sure that um, we were producing the clothes in Britain, and you know we weren't kind of using sweated labour and things mm-hmm. like that. But yeah. and in a sense, you know, I'd lived through the deindustrialisation of Sheffield. Like my memories of um, of, of Sheffield in the eighties and nineties are of this kind of decaying um industrial town mm-hmm. you know it's only kind of it's only recently i suppose the kind of last 10 years or so that i realized that sheffield town hall is made in york from yorkshire sandstone right because like, as a kid it was it was always black mm-hmm. <laughs> and now it's been jet washed <laughs> right <laughs> you know because there's a costa next door or whatever right yeah, yeah. <laughs> so everything's everything's clean and shiny and and this kind of beige whereas when I was growing up it was black and grimy um, and I think working then in fashion and working with with factories that were still producing clothes in in Britain mm-hmm. that, that is in a sense that was the last chapter of the industrialization mm-hmm. so the last the last big factory in Leicester closed in 2006 right and that was that was that really was the end of like british manufacturing essentially wow Wow. oh so like in in scale so the guy we used to go and see in leicester used to make the clothes for us he was sitting in this huge huge factory like massive yeah he'd he'd made he'd made denim for some really big brands through the 70s and 80s 90s um like i mean like this huge factory yeah like you it took you all morning to walk through it and visit all the rooms and look at all the fabric he'd got and it was reduced to like him and six other guys in one room of it with like so that you know they were just kind of in this room at the top, almost like a little like lighthouse or like crow's nest or something, hmm. um, where they were still managing to produce little bits of stuff for little brands like us. But mm-hmm. it was just, yeah, it was this tiny, tiny little operation mm-hmm. in the skeleton of this huge decaying beast. <laughs> On the river where you used to build the boats By the harbour wall, the place you loved the most I can see you there alone, but all you know I'll be there soon All your life you worked your fingers to the bone You worked hard for every little thing you owned That you gave away for years as if you'd known They were cold and out See me now 
That was the Lake Poets there with their track Shipyards. And now we return to my interview with author and academic Matthew Crowley. So that that experience and your upbringing, and also you were talking about your background there, that influenced uh-huh. your your thesis, right? Which has also turned into that's, the book. Is that right? That's that's right. And yeah, that's uh, the title so. title representation of working-class masculinities in post-war British culture. What did you, what did you find out when you were researching this? I mean, were you, were you surprised by some of the things that you uncovered? Um, I got, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the most surprising thing for me was, uh, I guess I kind of worked backwards in a way because mm-hmm. it was it, it definitely did come out of my own experience yeah. i think i mentioned to you before that you know initially it was this kind of <laughs> the, the the working title was in search of the working class hero yeah um you know and if you read like uh someone like james kelman's essays about his his the development of his sign i talk about kelman in the in the conclu- in the final chapter, oh, as, a, as a well. kind of be as a kind of beacon of hope mm-hmm. that 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 there are still these kind of dissenting working class voices, mm-hmm. um, and I think when when you listen to someone like Kelman talk about it, he he kind of recognises that growing up and reading that those voices that you recognised as your own mm-hmm. or or similar to your own were kind of marginalised and always kind of operated on the edges of literature mm-hmm. um, and that this kind of white male middle class voice is is the narrative voice that kind of sits centrally mm-hmm. um, and I think looking for the, the hero I suppose is you know I'd, I'd, I'd grown up and I'd started I suppose in my teenage years I started reading uh, like Saturday night and Sunday morning um, 
you know, and I reread that actually. I reread that when my partner was pregnant mm-hmm. with, with our first son, and I think that was the book that really kind of springboarded me back into academia, and I really wanted to start right. looking at it because I was reading it and thinking how Arthur Seaton is really not very nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that uh, that there are that he's kind of. He's kind of an anti-hero rather mm-hmm. than a working-class hero. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But that actually, I'd, I'd seen him as a kind of role model or a hero growing up when I first read the book. It was like, yeah, Arthur was. Arthur had something that um, that I felt I needed, mm-hmm. uh, and, I, and I think that you know, as problematic as that is in terms of how he treats women mm-hmm. and. You know, there are other issues with his sort of character. I, I think what's at the heart of it is his, his rebellion. You know, that, that sense of, like, what's his catchphrase? Um, it's a hard life if you don't weaken. Yeah. You know, and I yeah. remember first reading that and, 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 and kind of struggling to get my head around it and thinking, like, it's a hard life if you don't... It's a hard, and thinking, like, it's a hard life if you do weaken, you yeah. know, because then getting through it's harder. Yeah. But then, like, yeah. uh, then I, when I got it, when I finally got it, what he's talking about is rebellion. Yeah. You know, you can give up. You can give up. You can kind of, you can, you can acquiesce to all these material comforts that are being offered you, and you can go quietly into mm-hmm. the world of TVs and motor cars, and you can forget about the injustices and the inequalities that you're experiencing every day mm-hmm. and it's it's easy to, it's easy to sit back and watch tv and not think about that and yeah, to course. conform i guess yeah. you know and that's so his drive is always not to conform and to yeah. keep to, to keep being a rebel yeah what do, what do you think about literature today i mean from my point of view i believe it's it's very middle class are there many working yeah. class voices to, in, in contemporary literature, contemporary fiction today? Doesn't seem to be as many as there used yeah. to be. No, I think it's much more difficult. Mm. I think, I mean, I wouldn't want to say no, especially as my, I mean, my research for the book ended in 89. That was the cutoff point, you know, because obviously yeah, you, gotta, you, you gotta. have to cut it off somewhere. Otherwise yes. you can, you can keep going forever. Yeah. Um, but I think what, what I end with in the book, what I end up talking about is how there's a, there's a shift in discourse mm. and the discourse around class and around class and masculinity, I think, in particular mm-hmm. in the 1980s. That really changes the way that class is spoken about and thought about and engaged with on a kind of cultural level mm-hmm. um and i think and i think we're still in terms of literature i think we're still living with that with the effects of that yeah because um, i think working class i think music yeah. there's a lot of you know working class people that make music films as well directed yeah. at working class but but books it just seems to be you know very sparse but it, yeah i'd agree i think i think there are there are books, uh, I mean, I can't think of any in the last five or even maybe ten years, but... Mm. Um, I guess they're coming out maybe books. through mi- maybe through migrant stories, I guess. Well, yeah, and I think that is, that is something to kind of consider with this, is that I, I kind of make, make clear in my book at the start that what I'm dealing with is kind of white working class masculinities yeah. and that and that's coming from a a position of trying to discuss what I call mm-hmm. a traditional working class masculinity and obviously like a word like traditional as um, when we're talking about masculinities all class is quite difficult because they're not fixed categories mm-hmm. you know so what it means to be a working class man in I don't know, Sheffield in the mm-hmm. 1980s was different to what it meant to be a working class man in London in the 1980s. Right. Or 
what it meant to be a working class man in the 1950s that you know these these categories are like geographically and historically mm-hmm. specific yeah. and fluid and they're changing all the time and, and it, yeah. um, but what, what I'd argue is that there's an idea there about that, that all of these identities are um, constructed in relation to an idea that exists mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that idea isn't fixed but it's there yeah, you know, and yeah. even in this sort of so, the argument begins for me in in the nineteen like nineteen forty five, the end of the Second World War, and it's it's safe to say that the working class masculinity or the majority of working class men in Britain at that point were white. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. obviously with the Immigration Act of forty eight and the arrival of the Windrush and other waves of immigration. Class now, I think, is is very, very closely related to race and ethnicity, and yeah. and, um, yeah. and that there are kind of these emerging uh, and ongoing issues around class and colonialism, and mm-hmm. um, and I think you're right. I think that is a space where where these working class voices continue to be mm-hmm. to be more prominent. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think uh, as a kind of as a as a kind of sub is, is it really ever a genre? I don't know. But as yeah. a cat, you know, this idea of work working class writing, which has been present in in British literature for you know at least a hundred years more, yeah. is yeah. it seems to be. Um, yeah, I don't know. Where is it? Kelman's still around. Yeah, just. there are still voices. Mm-hmm. There are still voices, but but they seem to be um, more dis- more dispersed and less. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's a well, difficult one. I you, think partly it's to do with with the with with publishing, you know, and the well, fact that yeah. yeah, the world of publishing is still is very still, middle class. Tous les garçons et les filles de mon âge se promènent dans la rue de par deux. Tous les garçons et les filles de mon âge savent bien ce que c'est qu'être heureux. Et les yeux dans les yeux. Mais jour 
that in my appalling French was Francois Hardy with her track Tous les garçons et les filets. And now we return to my interview with author and academic Matthew Crowley. So you, you write fiction as well. Coming from a you know working class background, does that fuel your your fiction writing? Uh, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it 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 has definitely. I think it's kind of. I've always had a, a kind of. It's always influenced my thoughts. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in that sense, I think stylistically, I challenge what might be sort of considered as as working class writing but i don't Mm -hmm. but i wouldn't i wouldn't think that that um kind of separates it out i I got into a um i wouldn't call it an argument (laughs) (laughs) a kind of uh a correspondence let's call it diplomatically about a piece that i'd submitted um I mean, this is a few years ago now. You might have read the piece, actually. It was the one that was loosely based on the, on my sort of grandparents' experiences in the 50s and yeah. an argument that my grandmother had had with uh, uh, the manager of the cutlery factory that she worked in. Yeah. Um, and it, it got re- I sent it to a, a, a journal and it got rejected and I mean, you know, I'm a writer. I'm used to rejection. That mm-hmm. wasn't the issue. <laughs> you know, it wasn't. It wasn't the first rejection I'd ever had, and it well, and it definitely wasn't the last. Yeah. You know, that wasn't the issue. But the reviewer that that kind of sent it back made some comment about um, the voice of the of the narrator um, not not being believable. I, 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 the, I can't remember the exact wording of it. But the point that they were making was that it was being written from the point of view of a 1950s steelworker, which actually was incorrect because it, it had this kind of um, third-person omnipotent narrator in a, in a similar way to a book like mm-hmm. um, and that, like Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, I guess. You know, you've got this kind of free indirect discourse, I suppose, is the technical term for it. Yeah. So they were incorrect on that anyway. But the bit that really riled me was that they seemed to suggest that the voice that was writing was too articulate for the character. Right. Okay. And that, it's pretty contentious. And, and that, and that, yeah. So that kind of. So I just wrote back and said, "Well, I, I pointed out some of the stuff that I've just mentioned, and then kind of made the point that you know you seem to be suggesting that a working class voice can't be an articulate voice." Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, and and I took I took issue with that. Because you know, I I still consider myself a working class man, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I guess some of the guy, some of the people I went to school with might might not agree with me as I'm sat in my chair in a room in Stoke Newington in London. Books. Yes, <laughs> in London, you know, yeah. they might not agree with that, but. I still consider myself working class because I, I believe it's a cultural position. It's not. It's not entirely socio-economic or mm-hmm. geographical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like to think I, I have some level of, you know, that I can be articulate mm-hmm. at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I know I, I know lots of intelligent men, you know, oh. who maybe don't have the same vocabulary but mm-hmm. that doesn't make them any less articulate of course. if that makes sense yeah, yeah, of you know course. but they, they, they can still they can still make a point and mm-hmm. and it's and it's often a very insightful one mm-hmm. um and i mean that was one of the difficulties i had i think writing the thesis and then adapting it into the book is that throughout the whole thing there's this sort of sense that you had to occupy or kind of adopt this middle class academic voice in mm-hmm. order to make yourself heard. Yeah. Um, and that that poses some difficulties, I think, in terms of you know who gets heard mm-hmm. and why and when. And I think there are enough white 
middle-class male voices in the world already and that maybe it's time to hear a few well i think the world's voices. sick of them aren't they that's what we're, we're hearing it particularly over the last few months you know through uh yeah. you know, the black lives matter movement as well we talk a bit about your your fiction you're appearing mm-hmm. in a, a new anthology uh is it uh beyond beyond an beyond, anthology that's beyond. right by hype yeah. I can't really say this. Hyperidian Press. Hyperidian, yeah. And you have a a short story in there? I do, yeah. A short story called The Causeway. The Causeway. I've Um, read The Causeway. That's right, yes. How how can we get our hands on that? So, you can buy that Mm -hmm. directly from Hyperidian Press. Yep. uh, Which is hyperidiumpress.com mm-hmm. um, and I think I mean I'd encourage you not not just to buy it because my story is fantastic mm-hmm. but, uh, it is it is <laughs> but also that like, what the guys at Hyperidium are doing I think is important um, and it's a it, it's a not it's a non-profit um, publishers yes you know it's, it's, it's so it's, it's independent yep. um, we have an agreement all the authors have an agreement with the guys that are running the um, the organisation that, that all profits are split equally at the end. And it's about providing a space for experimental and um, uh, kind of, well, experimental I suppose covers it, but you know, like experimental fiction, finding new voices and, and giving a space for people to kind of explore um new ways to express um, mm-hmm. their thoughts on kind of big issues, I suppose. And, right. and, it, and it, so the, the call out initially was, was for, you know, visions of visions of the future. I mean, the fact that they are, I've not read all of them yet, but I've been, I've been reading through it, the predominantly dystopian and very dark visions. Right. I think I think says a lot about where we're at. Yeah, exactly. Very fitting um, for this time. Yeah. I I think I think the fact that um, it, it was published two weeks ago, I think. So uh, you yeah. know, well into kind of lockdown. Um, yes. Obviously, colours the reading of of these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, like for for example, my own my own um, piece is about a soldier who is sent to an outpost and can't remember how long he's been there and can't remember who sent him there Mm -hmm. and is alone i mean it came from an idea that i i wrote as a piece of flash fiction a kind of 250 word piece maybe two years ago Mm -hmm. so it wasn't um it didn't come out of lockdown Um, uh, but obviously reading it now it is basically about isolation and and how we ended up there yeah. um, so it, it, it seemed quite fitting given given where we're at but yeah. I think really what what many of the books are talking about in, in that sense is that well for me anyway that isolation existed before COVID mm-hmm. um I mean, as you well know, I'm, I'm quite happy to uh, to be a recluse at times anyway. You're right, writer, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, you know, but, <clears throat> but I think if when we think about social media, mm-hmm. and I, I, I still don't engage with it in any, in any way, mm-hmm. but, but I, I have to read about it. Mm-hmm. I still have students who write frequently about it, so I, you know, I'm kind of up to date with yeah. what what's going on, and and I think it's it's an incredible kind of cultural phenomenon. But I think mm. anti-social media would would be a, a. I mean, obviously that is not my phrase, <laughs> That's but a good I think it's closer to. Yeah, I think that you know, there's this kind of illusion of togetherness, isn't there? Yeah, it seems um, to bring out the worst in people. It really does. Like you, they just think they can go on these forums and 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 you can say whatever you like, whether or not it's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and that I guess brings us to the idea of truth, which is, is something I've been thinking about a lot mm. <laughs> recently. Mm. And this, the idea of, you know, because I think whenever I write, I think that, like, all the best stories are true. Mm. Okay, because if it's not true, your reader isn't going to believe it. Yeah. But then I think that word true doesn't have to mean like accurate or that it actually happened when yeah. we're writing fiction i guess in a similar way to someone like bs johnson wrote about you know and he would literally take elements of his life and, and present them as fiction i think I, I don't see myself in that kind of it's not as tightly um controlled as that mm-hmm. but i think you know because well, for example, the piece in Beyond is quite clearly this sort of dystopian future, mm-hmm. and it, you know, I've never, I've never been alone in an outpost um, um, yet. But there's, there has, but there has to, yeah, yeah, exactly. But there has to be some, there has to be some element of truth in it. Yeah, you know, and I think even the yeah. most kind of fantastical um, science fiction or fantasy or horror. You know, the reason that we engage with it as a reader, the reason that we get drawn into it is because we recognise some truth in it. Yes. Yeah. Whatever that whatever that truth might be. And yep. I think we've entered a period of history where the concept of truth is is once again kind of um, being questioned or is, is open to debate. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of truth obviously is like a... You know, it's been a, a. There have been philosophical debates about the nature of truth for yep. generations, yeah, thousands of years, yeah, um, and there will be for uh, thousands of years now, yeah, yeah. But you know, I'd suggest that from the Enlightenment period onwards, we kind of work towards this, or the the idea that there was some. Um, form of like objective truth became the kind of dominant um the dominant discourse i suppose or the dominant way of kind of viewing things the idea that something could be proved true Mm -hmm. like that 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 has been i would suggest the kind the kind of guiding principle of our lifetime Mm -hmm. um and i think increasingly we are that is under that's questionable mm-hmm. you know the idea of um fake news and alternative yeah. truths um so all these ideas about perception and how we see the world obviously there's you know fuck, fuck yeah. manipulation of imagery the idea of hyper reality and this the signs and symbols proliferating around us like what is what is the truth of any of it and yeah. i think that's a good point i think in in that i think kind of fiction then um fiction is really important yeah because it can cut through it can cut through the bullshit yeah and and it and it can it can present a view of the world that people will recognize and maybe kind of make draw those connections between what they're reading in this fictional world and the fictional world that they're now inhabiting day mm-hmm. to day mm-hmm. I- and that's not to kind of undermine the the, the kind of real problems that we're facing mm-hmm. you know it's not it's not to suggest that things like black lives matter and class and issues around feminism and um, mm. uh, you know, all these social issues are real. You know, and as much as class is cultural, it's also socio-economic. And there mm. are people who are queuing up for food banks in Britain. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there are these kind of hard realities. Yeah. But they're, but they're not experienced in the same way. Yeah. I mean, when you're hungry, you're hungry, right? Yeah. That's that's a fact. Like, so you you know you're experiencing that hunger. Um, when you're under threat of violence, you know that you're scared. You're experiencing that as real. Mm-hmm. But there are these layers of um, 
fiction that we that the world is mediated through every single day for yeah. all of us. Yeah. We're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to wrap it up there. Your name is Matthew Crowley. Thank you so much for talking to us. We could chat about this all night, but um, we're gonna have to wrap it up. So your fiction is appearing in Beyond, an anthology out now via. Yeah. Hyperidian Press, which we can get at the website hyperidium.com, I believe. That's your yeah. that's your fiction, your non-fiction. Your book is out now via, via Routledge. Uh, representation Routledge. of working class masculinities in post-war British culture. And we can find you. You do a bit of writing on Medium as well, don't you? We can find that on your do, yeah. on your website. Is that MatthewCrowley.com? Yeah, Matthew, no, .co.uk. MatthewCrowley.co.uk. I'll put these links on my website as well. Matthew, could you leave us with a track? Yeah, I, whilst writing, I've been listening to a lot of kind of neoclassical stuff about, you know, I find it easier to write with, with music that doesn't have lyrics. Yes. So I've been listening to a, uh, a very interesting uh, musician called Callie Malone who mm-hmm. I believe is an, an American who's now based in, in Sweden. Um, she kind of builds her own pipe organs and mics them up in interesting ways. Wow. Uh, she's got a new kind of album EP called Cast of Mind. Mm-hmm. And I think Arched in Hysteria is probably my favorite track. Matthew Crowley, thank you so much for talking to us all the way from London. It's been an absolute pleasure, Paul. Thank you. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is now bringing their award-winning wines, ginger beer and raspberry mead to your door, offering free delivery in central Victoria and Melbourne. Their lockdown wine box special includes a combination of Riesling, Grenache Rosé, Barb Shiraz, Cab Sav and Mount Camel Shiraz. Check out their Facebook page or Instagram for details or visit harcourtvalley.com.au. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is a full-bodied sponsor of Main FM. Knocked on your door. Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and District, including Campbell's Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the State Government, I'm here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat, funded from Parliamentary Budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM. Before those announcements, we heard the track Arched in Hysteria by the artist Callie Malone, and that was a selection by author and academic Matthew Crowley. Next up, Kirsten Krauth. Now, she's an author of Almost a Mirror, who you might know we had on for Radiothon here in The Quiet Carriage. 
She's Castlemaine based, and she's made a series of quite beautiful recordings uh, from her book, uh, where she reads her work, and it's tracked by music from the 80s era, which is the backdrop to the book Almost a Mirror. I'm going to try and play one of these a month, which Kirsten has very kindly allowed us to. Um, Here, she's reading the chapter Change in Mood with music from the artist Michelangelo, who's playing a version of the Kids in the Kitchen track of the same name. Mum has your photos framed in the hallway and I'm lost somewhere in the darkness. I can see me there, but not in the places you'd expect. Sometimes you come in too close because you want to see my eyes, sensing. You make me look like a statue coming to life. My arms and legs are marble. My hair and lipstick stand out because they're not the real colour. In the photos in the hallway, you've ripped off parts of me, so I'm missing bits of my body. You never speak much as you move through the studio. Look so careful for a fault. Wait one minute, say no more. Bewildered then, bewildered now. Conceal forever, is this the end? Mum sits in the back corner. She doesn't look up after the first few minutes. When I started taking my clothes off for you, I was more shy about her. Sometimes in the bright, my eyes hurt, but it's not so hard to work lying down. I get pocket money for my visits, which Mum puts straight into the bank. I don't like doing compound interest at school, but I like seeing it in my bank book. Twist your arm to the left. When you take photos, your eyes are wide, but you don't really look at me. You've got a big camera, so your face is often in shadow, and all I can see is the space between us. Out of the camera comes a flickering stream of dusty gold light, like at the movies. It's pointed at me. That's how I imagine it. Point your chin up towards the ceiling. You float along the walls and in and out, making your fantasies. That's the word you use. You spelled it out for me. You let my mind wander in and out too because I have to stay so still, waiting. I like the dark and quiet in this room. You're playing classical music as we arrive and I try to take my uniform off without falling over. You talk about Mahler and Wagner, but you always switch the music off just when I'm getting used to it. I asked you once if I could put on my Kids in the Kitchen tape, but you turned and looked as if you'd lost something. If there's a short, easy word and a long, hard word, you always choose the word that I don't understand. Now roll over and turn your head on the pillow. Pull your legs up. I'm a little girl sleeping, letting my knees fall away from the sky changing. I'm on top of the doona. It doesn't have a cover because you like the soft swan colour. Trace your eyes along the wall to your left. You make my body black and white. It comes out of the picture sometimes and stays hidden when I want it to. I can feel the cool shadows touching my skin as I look up at the little room that drapes over the stairs. It's a nest of soft lamps and books fly out of the shelves. I've never been up those stairs. Goosebumps cover my skin. I've never seen goosebumps in a photo. I wonder what they would look like close up. The dry bumps of the moon. I'm a girl lying on a beach. The bracelets around my wrists and ankles start to ache and I shift as my hand goes to sleep. I hit the pins and needles out with my other fist, at first funny bone and then not so funny. I watch the light flicker up above me, tracing my shape on the bed. 
I imagine Scott Kahn staring back at me from the ceiling. I remember infatuation to figure of your imagination through young times and wilder minds conceal forever as a sea. I'm a girl diving into a pool. I have tanned legs and the purple lipstick mum won't let me wear. I can see my reflection in his mirrored sunglasses. When we touch, I turn into a Polaroid and fly out of his reach. I dive again to bring him back. I wish I was in my room. Sometimes when you show me the photos, I don't even recognise it's me. It's a long way to come from home. When I see my body, it's still mine, but it looks like something to hang on the wall. Changing. Changing mood, I can sense it. Changing every day. Changing mood, I can sense it. Changing every day. I let my belly hang out and close my eyes, opening them to see you bob your head up like a killer whale ready to dive. Gaze at that brick on your left and count to ten. Sometimes hours can go by like this as you swim towards me, surfacing now and again for air. I turn and settle inside my body. No thoughts in this space, wooden beams and shadowed like a church. Waiting. So focused that I stop blinking. Now my eyes are open wide Fear and voice I remember Changing mood I can sense it Changing every day That was Kirsten Krauth there with music by Michelangelo. She was reading the chapter Change in Mood from her book out now via Transit Lounge, Almost a Mirror. You are listening to 94.9 Main FM and that's all we have time for today. A huge thank you to Matthew Crowley and also to Kirsten Krauth and Michelangelo. I've been Paul J. Laverty. This has been The Quiet Carriage. You can listen to us Fridays 1pm on 94.9 and also mainfm.net and all old episodes are available on Spotify. Until next time, keep reading. No agenda. Music, interviews, mostly music. Saturdays, noon until 2pm, 
on 94.9 Main FM. Make it your soundtrack for Saturday.